want to invite you to turn, if you brought a Bible uh, or in your electronic devices, to the little book of 1 John, which is almost to the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2. And we are halfway through a very brief Christmas-centered sermon series that we've entitled, Unto Us, A Son is Given. In his very excellent devotional book, The Christmas We Didn't Expect, David Mathis writes, the deepest significance of Christmas, that that should get our attention, (laughs) The deepest significance of Christmas isn't just that Jesus came to save us, but that he is who he is. The surpassing value of Christmas isn't finally knowing ourselves to be saved, but knowing the Jesus who saves us. And that really pretty well sums up our aim and our purpose in this brief series. Namely, knowing the Jesus who saves us. It's digging deeper into the person and the work and the offices of the Son who has been given to us. And today, I want to draw your attention to Jesus, our advocate. And so, we turn now to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And uh, I'm not into this stand-up, sit-down, stand-up, sit-down thing, but as an expression of our great regard for God's Word. Um, If you're physically able, would you please stand? I'm going to read these two verses. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's holy word. It was written, it was preserved in order to restrain us from sinning. That's exactly what it said. And it is the word of Christ that the Holy Spirit uses to stir and strengthen faith. And may it be profitable to those ends. Now, pray with me, please. And so, Lord, we would ask that your word might be this powerful, this effective means of you getting your work done. Reveal yourself to us. Reveal your power among us. We pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We pray that all of the virtues purchased, paid for in full because of the the coming and the living a perfect life, and the dying a sin-atoning death, and the rising again and ascending to the Father and interceding for us even now, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
all that he has accomplished might be poured out upon us and we would sense it, know it, experience it, Lord. May this be so. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We looked at this text last week, um, but Romans chapter 3, verse 23, there the apostle Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Doubt if anybody here would dispute that. But it's the second clause against which we sometimes find ourselves pushing back. All fall short. That's a present passive tense indicating a continuous action. All continuously fall short of the glory of God. All. I think that's the stumbling block, right? All. Every human being in the entire world is continually falling short of treasuring God. Every human being in the entire world continually falls short of loving God, desiring God, honoring God, to the degree of God's infinite and eternal worth. God is worth white-hot worship. And I'm not sure about you, but I'm somewhere under white-hot, even at this very moment. No one acknowledges him, no one esteems him, no one takes him into, a, into appropriate consideration, all of his wisdom, his will, or his purpose, as much as he in all his glory deserves. And therefore, all continually fall short. And this all includes Christians. That's why John writes, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. My little children, John is addressing those who belong to the family of God. These are people who have turned to Christ, have trusted Christ, have been joined to Christ, and who enjoy all the spiritual blessings that belong to all who are in Christ. They are God's children by generation, regeneration, excuse me. They are God's children by new birth. They are God's children by conversion. They are God's children by justification. And to these dearly loved people, John is writing so that, to the end that, they they won't continue to sin. So, This may come as a shock to some of you here. It it may come as a shock to some of you watching the live stream. I'm assuming that the live stream is happening this morning. But, But here it is. Christians sin. Now, now for others of you, um, that that's just simply stating the obvious. Of course, Christians sin. All, including regenerate, converted, justified Christians continually fall short of the glory of God. If you have experienced new birth, you know what it's like to have, you know what it's like to have affections for God that you, you did not have before you were made new. 
But it is safe to say that those affections seldom reach the proportion fitting the worth of God. And so, to one degree or another, we are all falling short of the glory of God. Loved ones, Christians sin. And this is the reality that stunned the great Christian reformer Martin Luther. Namely, that a person who has been joined to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and could be counted holy and blameless in the sight of God, even though in terms of practical reality, weren't. (laughs) They weren't holy and blameless. Christians sin. And the, the question that I want to raise first is, Why is it important to state this obvious fact? At the very least, it is because sin, by its very nature, resists all attempts at being discovered and being dealt with. Sin is sneaky. We deflect, we deny, we diminish, We discount the presence of sin in our lives with all our being. I don't sin. Only sinful people sin. (laughs) Before you object too strongly to that, let me me just tell you that that before my eyes were open to the depth of my corruption, (laughs) I would have said that. I would have said something like that. The fact is, I did say that. Sin is what sinful people do. And having been born to and raised by morally upright church-going parents, I look down my self-righteous slope at the things sinful people did. And I took great pride as a young person saying, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and God forbid I don't go out with girls that do. I mean, that was me. Christian testimonies tend to fall into one of two categories. One is the the tale of a savior rescuing this individual from scandalous, socially unacceptable behavior. And the other is this almost apologetic confession of a personal testimony void of any real significant need for a savior. Never made the naughty list. You know, it's, it's if there are no scandalous sins, there aren't any sins. This framework for considering the reality of sin is pervasive. Even those who have never turned to Christ, have never trusted Christ, think of Christians in this very moralistic way. If if a professing Christian stumbles and exhibits some manifestation of their corruption, their remaining corruption, the the non-Christian goes, and with eyes wide open go, I thought you were a Christian. As if the substance and defining distinctive of a follower of Jesus were a sin-free life. All fall short of getting this right. (laughs) In John, 1 John 1, 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, so you see, there, there are some like that. We're not the only ones. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10 If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, if you have been made new by God's eternal and implanted word in you, you must own up to the fact that Christians sin. Now, there are also Christians who sin and and who know that they sin and yet aren't really all that concerned about their sin. This is known as license. These would be professing Christians who understand the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and then their reasoning goes something like this. Well, since I'm not justified on the basis of works of righteousness I have done or not done, but I am justified rather on the basis of grace and through my profession of faith alone, I'm all good. Of of course I'm going to sin. Everybody sins. But God counts me righteous anyway. He doesn't judge me. And you ought not to judge me either. We sin then that grace may abound. (laughs) And, and, And you know, of course, there's some truth in that framework. But there are some serious gaps. In Ephesians 1, 4, the Apostle Paul writes, He, that is God, chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him to the praise of his glorious grace. So God saves sinners through Christ, not merely for the sake of experiencing forgiveness and the hope of heaven while they just keep right on sinning and sinning and sinning. God elects and calls and regenerates and converts and justifies us in union with Christ so that we might be holy and blameless for the sake of his glory. In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We... We who have been joined to Jesus, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the, the, the union of a person to Christ, into all that Christ is, it changes things. We still sin, yes, The reality of remaining sin in the life of every true believer will be true until the day we die. But that reality is not a license to sin willingly and carelessly and casually. And so John tells us in 1 John 2, verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now there's... There's yet another person, I believe, that John has in mind as he writes these things. And that is the individual who has experienced new birth. 
and they've turned to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they've trusted Jesus for his righteousness, his law-fulfilling perfection to be credited to them. They've trusted Christ for his wrath-propitiating, sin-atoning sacrifice to be credited to them. They are justified in Christ. They are in the process of being sanctified. They are God's dearly loved children. They do not want to sin. But on account of the reality of remaining sin in the hearts of these true believers, there are things that they do that they don't want to do. And there are things that they don't want to do that they do. And then there are things that they know are just flat out wrong, but at times they really want to do those things. And they do. And with tender and conflicted hearts, they're discouraged. I want to stop sinning, but I can't stop sinning. Feel like I woke up with the devil sitting on my face. What am I supposed to do about that? And to you, if that's you, my tender-hearted friends, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Christian, listen. These God-breathed words, this very text itself, is a means by which you may experience divine encouragement in times when you sin and are falling short of the glory of God. And, And what do these verses say that imparts this sin-restraining, soul-encouraging, shame-relieving help. You ready? Here it is. You have an advocate. Unto you is given an advocate. And that advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. John wrote 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and following, in order to remind Christians, to remind us that we sin. John wrote these things in order to remind us, Christians, that we have a means of grace, a means of help to restrain us from sinning. And John wrote these things in order to remind us that if we do sin, and we will sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous. How could we forget this? Why do we need to be reminded of this? How could we forget that we sin? (laughs) How could we forget that we have been given the word of God, that we might not sin against God? How could we possibly forget that we have been given an advocate with the Father? Well, there are reasons that we would forget. And so, when you sin, remember that you have an advocate because, and this is what will help us to remember, because remaining sin in the life of a believer 
is deadly serious. When Christians sin, when when you and I sin, the reason that we need to be reminded again and again that we have an advocate is because of our tendency to take sin lightly. We don't tend to think of it as deadly serious. But the presence of remaining sin is serious, very serious. As, As John Owen so famously wrote, Christian, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Remaining sin in the life of the true believer is a toxin that if forgotten and unattended will ruin you. Perhaps you have seen the inside of a courtroom. Um, the, The atmosphere... Of, of this place where binding legal judgments are decided and executed is serious. It just has a vibe to it, you know, even when the room's empty. Um, it's like a sanctuary for worshiping God. A courtroom is not a playground. You just feel the gravity. And when court is in session, it is particular. It's particularly sobering. I, I, the first time I entered a courtroom of law was when I was in seminary and I served as a, a youth pastor in an inner city church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And there was a, there was a teenager in our youth group who, um, he came from a pretty rough background and he had been charged with stealing a car. That's a big deal. And I still remember what it felt like in that room. There was no joking around And I still remember the look on that young man's face in his eyes. He knew, he knew that his whole future was in the hands of that judge. It was a solemn and cold, sober moment. I remember another courtroom appearance. And um, we were living in Hawaii and uh, Laurie was pregnant with our oldest son. And uh, at that time, we lived near Pearl Harbor, and our hospital was in Waikiki, and probably means nothing to you, but, but that's no mere hop, skip, and a jump. You know, it doesn't matter what you see on TV. I mean, it takes a while to get down there. And, and uh, one night, Laurie's having contractions, and she says, we got to go now. And so, man, I fired up the four cylinders of our Nissan Sentra station wagon, kind of like it was Thomas Magnum's Ferrari, and, and we are flying into town, screaming up over this overpass and down the other side, and right there in front of us with their radar pointed straight at me is Honolulu's finest. And um, in Hawaii... <laughs> The Aloha State. Uh, traffic violations require an appearance in court. And um, at my trial for speeding to the hospital, my shame was provoked as it was already provoked, but it was intensified as I was summoned to the judge's bench. Case number. 
blah, 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 blah. The state of Hawaii versus Reverend Gregory Dernberger. <laughs> it was awful. And, but it got worse um, because I felt worse when I approached Judge Shimabukuro, who happened to be our next-door neighbor. <laughs> and the worst of all is that Judge Shimabukuro was also a very close personal friend of my father-in-law. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> Shame. Friends, if appearing in a human court of law feels intimidating, remember that when Christians sin, and Christians, like everybody else, commit countless sins, they stand before the holy judge of heaven and earth. And it's no joke. It is an infinitely solemn and infinitely cold, sober place to stand. Psalm 130 Verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is, no one. There's no one. There's no one who stands guiltless before the throne of God. Friends, my little children, if you are tempted to diminish or deny or discount or deflect remaining ongoing sin in your life, it would serve you to remember that when you do sin, your appearance in the court of heaven is required. And as a child of God, you do not stand alone. You have an advocate there's, there's something else to remember when we sin. And that is, as Christians, when we sin, you're the plaintiff and Satan is the prosecutor. See, when, when Christians sin, a trial ensues on the spot. And we appear as the accused. In the courtroom of heaven, we are the plaintiff, also known as the defendant. And according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. God's children are being charged for their continual falling short of the glory of God all the time. And so when a Christian whose eyes have been opened to behold the beauty of the glory of the Lord and whose heart beats with spiritual life and affection for the goodness of the Lord, when he or she sins, something happens that does not happen when unconverted people sin. It's different. When Christians sin, John Bunyan describes it like this. Satan does not only tempt the godly man or woman to sin, but having prevailed with him or her. That is, when Satan has tempted a Christian to sin, <laughs> Satan makes them guilty. And he packs them away to the court and to God 
the holy judge of all, and there he proceeds to bring charges against that man or woman and to lay before the righteous and holy judge of heaven and earth the heinousness of their offenses. Satan pleads before God, the judge, that God's own law has been broken. And oh, how much more serious this crime is since it is God's dearly loved children that ought to have known better. You see, that's what Satan does. He he woos us, he lures us, he schmoozes us, he makes promises to us, he baits us, and then once we've taken his bait, he sets the hook, he turns on us, and our very generous-hearted friend who made all these promises, on your knees, hands behind your head, Cuffs us and drags us off to court. And there he mocks us. And he belittles us. And he turns prosecutor on us. Making his case against us. With indisputable evidence of our high-handed willful law breaking. No excuses. And he drives home point after devastating point. Before the holy judge. Proving. That our sin was nothing short of cold-blooded treason. But we have an advocate. A son promised, anticipated, and given unto us. And he is foreshadowed in the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 3. Listen to this scenario that's played out. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So Joshua, the high priest has sinned, and Satan has brought him before God, bringing down the house of prosecution against him. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. There is his guilt. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, And I will clothe you with pure vestments. Verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest. Behold. I will bring my servant the branch and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. It's looking forward to the cross. It's looking forward to the Christ. Who's the branch? Who's this advocate for Joshua the high priest who removes the iniquity of God's chosen ones in the court of heaven 
in a single act. The third thing to remember is, is that this advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our defender himself is himself also our defense. His, his case against our accuser is himself. First John chapter 2, verse 1, the second half of the verse. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. There's a saying, um, he who serves as his own attorney has a fool for a client. It goes without saying, we would be fools to seek to defend ourselves in the court of heaven. But praise to God when Christians sin, the defense brought forth by our advocate is based on the propitiation of God's wrath through Jesus' own blood. So, loved ones, when we sin and Satan drags us before the bench of the holy judge of heaven and earth, and he brings all these, I mean, these are legitimate charges, right? Legitimate charges against us. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is standing beside us. And his plea, his strong plea, his perfect plea before the throne of God are his own wounded hands and his own wounded feet and his own wounded side. And his compelling and effectual plea is that our names were written on his heart in the book of heaven before the foundation of the world. And when Satan brings his charges and he tempts us to despair by throwing this damning evidence of our guilt in our face. Our hope, our only hope is to look up and to see this advocate on our behalf. Our advocate, your advocate, my advocate, our Lord Jesus Christ the righteous who on the cross made an end to all of our sins, past, present, and future. And because this righteous Savior died in our place, God now looks at him. God looks at him and says, guilty is charged. And God looks upon his wounds and the punishment that he endured and the justice of the holy judge is satisfied. And our sinful souls are counted free. Christian, you are free. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a little book that I think you'll find out on that table out there. It's a gift that we give to guests. It's entitled, A Gospel Primer. We love this book. Because it says things like this. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. 
God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus, who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. When I sin... God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. And he longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he has already forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me, even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day. Because even on our best day, we are still continually falling short of the glory of God. But this is my salvation, and herein I stand. That's our hope, Christian friends. But perhaps you are someone who has never turned to Jesus Christ the righteous. You've never trusted Jesus Christ, the righteous, for the forgiveness of your sins and for the fulfillment of every promise God has made to his adopted sons and daughters, including the promise of eternal life. Why would you put that off? Do you fear that Satan's case is just simply too open and shut? I mean, it's just, well, of course it is. It is for all of us. All have sinned and continually sin. Do you fear that Jesus' sacrifice is somehow not sufficient to pay the debt of your sins? It's a mile high. That's no surprise. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says, you should think otherwise. It says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. His sacrifice is sufficient to pay for every sin that has ever been committed, is being committed, never will be committed by all who have ever lived. And it is efficient for you if you will turn and trust Him. Loved ones, unto us, A son is given, and he's not just any son, but Christ, God's son, our Savior, and our God. And in the words of David Mathis, the surpassing value of Christmas isn't finally knowing that we ourselves are saved, but knowing the Jesus who saves us. Let's pray. Lord, in this this Christmas season, as we 
celebrate the one who was born to save, born to deliver, born to be our advocate. As we celebrate this holiday, I pray that when we sin, that you would help us to remember that our sins are the reason why the Christ was born. Our sins are the reason why the Christ was given. Our sins are the reason why the Christ came and lived the perfect life he lived. Our sins are the reason why our Savior died the death he died. Our sins are the reason why he stands before you today, O God, pleading, interceding, advocating on our behalf with a perfect, perfect righteousness which we could have never accomplished on our own. This Christ is all we need. Would you bring peace to every heart and soul? Would you bring hope to every heart and soul? Would you bring reverence and loving desire of you to every heart and soul? Do this, Lord, as a, as a display of your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name.